Want to go ahead and read the thing? Yeah. We value our children. As parents, we place their needs above ours. We sacrifice our leisure time to hang out with them because frankly, it's more fun. If the situation were dire, we'd go hungry so they could eat. In a moment of danger, very few parents wouldn't lay down their lives for their kids. Very few parents wouldn't quit their jobs to keep their children safe. The deaths of children is a tragedy that is unspeakable for human beings. It's more than the loss of a human life. It's the loss of the entire potential of that person, whoever they would have grown up to be. The vessel of the love, dreams, and hopes of their families. It's an ever-present fear in the backs of the minds of parents. At the end of the day, no matter our political, social, or cultural backgrounds, we all want our kids to come home safe. For those parents who've lost children to disease, catastrophe, or violence, that loss is an ever-present wound that may scar over, but will never truly heal. In one moment, a small village lost half of their children killed by a completely preventable occurrence, something that cannot be labeled an accident any more than setting a time bomb under a home. This community suffered that wound that will not heal, due not to human error or natural disaster, but to a calculated effort to press every last cent out of a coal mining operation, the human cost be damned. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the Abavan Disaster. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my sister and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. Normally, we have sort of a silly title for the beginning of our episodes, but given the subject matter today, um, I'm Greg, co-host of Relative Disasters. And I'm his sister, Ella, co-host of Relative Disasters. Uh, the main source for today's Episode comes from Abafan Disasters in Government by Ian McLean and Martin Johns, uh, published by the Welsh Academic Press in the year 2000. An excellent piece uh, for the BBC by Sari Jackson entitled Abafan, The Mistake That Cost a Village Its Children uh, was also extremely helpful. So to start with, we are going to be talking about the deaths of over a hundred children. So this is a good episode to skip if that's not something you want to process. Uh, it was difficult doing the research for this piece. So if you're a listener who'd rather hear something else, I don't blame you in the least. Um, mm. This is not going to be uh, a fun one, but it's an important story that's important to tell um, because the more we know about our history, hopefully the less likely we are to repeat the same mistakes. So let's talk about Abavan itself. So Abavan is a very small village on the bottom of the Western Valley slope of the River Taf. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of names in here that are very Welsh that I cannot pronounce. And, but Abavan is a, a nice little place. Uh, its history is very interesting. It consisted entirely of an inn Mm. And two cottages <laughs> until 1869, when a industrialist named John Nixon started the coal mine industry there. Basically, South Wales 
is full of coal. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an excellent location for coal to form. And there's a lot of it under these lovely rolling green hills of southern Wales. Coal drove the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. The demand for coal, especially from Wales, was gigantic. And so entire townships sprung up where really the main thing that they were were places for the coal miners to live and maybe get married and have kids while working in that coal mine. Mm -hmm. Now, the mine here is one of the largest of the 600 or so mines down in that valley. But by 1965, the coal industry had been in decline for 30 years mm. uh, in favor of oil. Oil yep. was a little bit easier, a little less dangerous to get out of the ground, and a lot of the mining pits had closed down. In Abavan, though, uh, they were still mining. However, the workforce, which used to, at its peak, was around 2,000 miners, uh -huh. was about 800, which was still, I mean, Abavan itself only had a population of around anywhere from four to 5,000. So that's still a sizable chunk of, yeah. of it. And uh, definitely one of those things where it's a single industry town. If the mine closes, everybody goes out of work. Mm-hmm. Because everything else, you know, the the grocery store, the butcher's shop, the bakers, the Quakers, the candlestick makers, all of their businesses are there because of the coal mine. Mm -hmm. And once that money goes away, the whole thing goes away. So we're back to one, what was it, an inn and two cottages? <laughs> yeah, it was one inn that apparently was frequented by local farmers and people working on barges. Okay. In Wales... Over 6,000 people had died in the coal mines in various accidents since the late 1800s. I think we talk about this whenever we talk about coal mining or mining of oh, any yeah. kind. It's incredibly dangerous. Incredibly dangerous. There's, it, it, you're, you're underground. There's no escape when something goes wrong and things will go wrong. It was sort of a, a given that every day you walked into the coal mine, you were risking your life. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a trade-off that you're making because you're providing for your family by risking your life. No, no different than, you know, a, a, a soldier in the old days or something. Okay. However, what the miners were never expecting was to risk the lives of their children, which is exactly what happened in Abavan. The National Coal Board, the NCB, had taken control over uh, mining in the United Kingdom. Uh, mining as an industry was nationalized in 1947. Mm -hmm. And the NCB was fighting two bad things. It was fighting a lot of strikes, which were not bad things. They were workers trying to not get killed on a more regular basis. Mm -hmm. uh, but to the NCB, those were bad things. And they were also facing a dwindling call for coal. Okay. Now, the answer to both of these things was continued pressure. Uh, if you guys go on strike, we'll just close the mine. And as most of these are small mining towns like Abavan, uh, that means your entire town goes under. So that's your fault. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, there, there are several uh, statements from NCB people that I'm, I'm not going to directly quote here because they just make me too angry. Mm -hmm. But... Those are those are part of them. Okay. The NCB was an unassailable, almost 
dictatorial force. If you wanted to work and you lived in, in Southern Wales, they had some form of control over your life. Mm -hmm. Everything comes from an active neglect of safety here, as, as with most of our coal mining stories, I feel. It's just so disappointing. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where I just feel like we're just saying the same things over and over about coal disasters. It's like, and then the company said, no, we're going to do the unsafe thing because we can make 0. .0001 cents more per tonnage than if we do the safe thing. Just, anyway. You're expecting it, but it's still really disappointing. Yeah, it's no matter. I was expecting to, to be disappointed and I was still disappointed. It's yep. that sort of thing. You set the bar low and somehow they slither under it. So coal mining, mm -hmm. uh, very, very basically, you go underground, you dig out huge chunks of coal, you send them up to the surface. On the surface, they go through a slight refining process. They usually get washed Mm -hmm. So that like debris and stuff comes off of them. So you, all you've got is the coal. Sometimes if the coal lumps are fairly large, they'll get smashed up a little bit for easier transportation. Uh, but what you're left with after the mining is a lot of coal waste. Mm -hmm. Now, coal waste uh, that is made of ground material is called spoil and spoil Really, there's nothing else you can do with it. You can't put it back in the hole that you just dug out because you got to keep going deeper in that hole to get more coal. Right. So just like the kid who's digging out a giant hole in the sandbox, what you're doing is you're making a giant stack of that spoil material near mm -hmm. your mine. The dirt has to go somewhere. Sure. And it's not just dirt. It's usually dirt and shale, lots mm -hmm. of shale, leftover slag, leftover... Um, Stuff like tailings, which is what you get left over after you've washed the coal. Mm -hmm. And they get piled all up into these spoil mountains that are called tips. Does anyone take them away at a certain point? No, you just leave them there. You but, get your own man-made mountain right next to your homes. But no, that's messy. Because here's the thing. In the United Kingdom at this time, there were no laws about tips. Okay. No laws about spoil tips. No laws about even how to properly make one so that they don't collapse. And I'm sorry, this is the 1960s? Yes, 1966 is when the disaster happens. Okay. So yeah, that, that becomes important in a moment. Mm -hmm. Since the Abavan mine had been mined for such a long time, there were seven of these tips, okay? Mm -hmm. So I want you to think seven man-made mountains. The first tip was constructed during the First World War. It was 85 feet high, 26 meters, mm -hmm. and contained 180,000 cubic meters of spoil. Okay? Okay. Tip number two was finished in 1918, being 27 meters high and containing 439,000 cubic meters of spoil. You get uh, tip number three finished in 1925, tip number four finished in 1933, and each one gets bigger. Uh, tip number three is 40 meters high, tip number four is 45 meters high, tip number five finished in 1945 is 52 meters high. Jeez. Okay. Now, tip number six is smaller. Uh, that one's only 17 meters high because part of it broke off and slid away. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, right, because we're on a hillside, right? We're dumping all this stuff on a hillside. Plus, we're dumping all this stuff in southern Wales, where not only is there a lot of underground, you know, veins of coal, Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of underground springs, which are clearly marked on geological survey maps Mm -hmm. and were ignored by the NCB. Oh, boy. So we come to tip number seven. Tip number seven lasted from 1958 until its collapse in 1966. Mm -hmm. At its time of collapse, it was 111 feet, 34 meters high, and it had 227,000 cubic meters of spoil. Wow. Okay. For those uh, lingering on imperial measurements, that is almost 300,000 cubic yards of spoil. Yikes. And it's just sitting in this pile Now, the way that it would work is the coal would come off, uh, all the stuff would get washed off it, scraped off of it, smashed off of it, whatever. All that waste material, all that spoil goes in a little tram that's on a railway track, goes Mm -hmm. up the hill. The tram gets picked up by a crane turned upside down to dump the stuff. The crane puts it back on its rail and it goes back down the, uh, you know, back down the the hill to collect more. Okay. It's a very very simple system. Mm -hmm. These tips... The ones around Abavan were not placed on, like, solid ground because there is no solid ground. There's a lot of hills. Right. So they were placed on hillsides. And all tips, you always should be worried about sliding. Anything that slides off of them uh, is a problem. Now, especially Abavan's tip number seven, because most of the ground under it was sandstone. Mm Mm-hmm. That had under underground streams and underground springs. Okay, so not the most stable. It's aside not from stable being ground. Slanted. Okay. Exactly. It's not stable ground, and it's not something that you should stack a whole bunch of dirt on top of. Sure. Especially when a lot of that dirt is shale. Right. Uh, now there had been a crater that appeared at the top in 1963. Mm-hmm. That crater was the result of a mountain mountain spring water underneath it that had been trapped by all of this waste and was unable to drain away. So what is what does water do when it encounters, you know, soil? Mm-hmm. It liquefies it. And when it's liquefying this spoil material, mm-hmm. what you get is not mud. What you get is essentially black concrete quicksand, okay? Okay. So it is a substance that will set very quickly, set as hard as rock, but once it's wet, it'll move almost like water. Yikes. Okay. Okay. The town had notified, they had notified the NCB about the the small slip mm-hmm. on tip number seven, and they had stated on previous occasions through letters and legal documents that, look, these tips are a problem We don't want them to come down the hillside at us. Okay. A number of people who were sent out to investigate them and then said, oh, no, they're they're safe, were employed by the NCB. Shocker. It's a small conflict of interest there. And the people working the site couldn't speak out about it because if they did, Mm -hmm. the NCB would shut down the mine. On the morning of October 21st, 1966, at about 7.30 in the morning, the people working up on the site of the slip 
noticed that it was behaving oddly. The, the top of it had sunk about 20 feet down. That's not a good sign. It, it's a precursor to the whole thing's going to collapse. Right. Because when it craters like that, it's because stuff is coming up underneath, forming that muddy, quicksandy concrete mixture. Mm-hmm. This is a firsthand account from one of the members of the tipping gang. Mm-hmm. Um, when he was questioned by the uh, subsequent inquiry of how the slide started. He said, quote, It was starting to come back up. It started to rise slowly at first. I thought I was seeing things. And then it rose up at tremendous speed. Then it sort of came up out of the depression and turned itself into a wave down towards the mountain, towards Abavan village, into the mist. Oh my God, that must have been horrifying. End quote. Yes. Now, the mist plays a part in this because okay. it had been raining for like a solid week before this thing collapsed. Mm-hmm. And rain isn't great for spoiled tips because like they will, you know, they'll muddy up, but they won't collapse like this. Mm-hmm. The time of day is the worst part of it. We're still at seven in the morning. We are still at 730 in the morning when it began. That's when the 20 foot depression formed. Okay. At about. 9.10, 9.15, it started to flow. Mm-hmm. That is the time at which the children in the junior school in the village sat down in their classrooms. Had this happened five minutes before at, you know, 9.05 to 9.10, mm-hmm. these children would have still been in their assembly hall and likely would have been protected in that. Mm. Had this happened Three hours later, afternoon, the kids would have been home because they only had a half day and oh, uh, they would have been sent home on holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, and it happened the next day, everybody would have been home. However, this avalanche of black mess came flowing down the hill just as the uh, the children were settling into their desks. The school building is right at this valley, right at the mouth of this valley. Where is the position? The school. So if you look at it, pictures after the disaster or, and pictures before, mm-hmm. basically this had to flow down the sides of the mountain, smash through two homes, killing the people living in those homes instantly. Mm-hmm. And then hit the village. And the school was sort of at the bottom of the hillside. Okay. Which gave the kids a lovely view out their classroom windows of the hillside. It didn't just hit the school. It hit about 18 homes on its way. But hitting the school is really what gave this its... uh, its context of tragedy. So this is a full avalanche coming down the hill. This is a full avalanche of slurry. Ugh. It's more, it's closer to like almost a tidal wave. Mm-hmm. It hit the school at approximately 9.15. On its way down the hill, it ruptured a water main, mm-hmm. which just gave it more, uh, more water into its flow and increased its velocity and just made everything worse. The people in the school that survived recall hearing a sound that sounded like a jet plane. Mm -hmm. 
or a giant roaring sound. I'm going to quote one of the people who survived. Okay. He was, he was an eight-year-old boy at the time. Quote, One minute, we were innocent young children of eight years who were looking forward to the holiday. And then at 20 past nine, we were completely different people and would never be the same again. I'd gone over to the library books, which were on top of the windowsill at the back of the class, which faced the tip, and picked up The Adventures of Tintin. I came back to my desk and our teacher started the maths lesson. The next thing I remember was waking up my right foot stuck in the radiator and there was water pouring out of it. My desk was pinned against my stomach and a girl's head was on my left shoulder. She was dead. Because all the debris was around me, I couldn't get away from her. The image of her face comes back to me continuously. It was black all around me, but there was an aperture of light about 10 feet above me. There were particles of dust spinning and glistening when the light caught them. I could hear crying and screaming. As time went on, they grew quieter and quieter as the children died, buried and running out of air." End quote. About 90 minutes after the waves struck the school, this young boy, Jeff, was actually rescued. Basically, as soon as the waves struck the school, Mm-hmm. People in the village and miners came rushing to try to uh, find people, mm-hmm. digging things out with pickaxes. And the problem was, was that, uh, as I said before, this stuff hardens mm-hmm. and sets. And um, people were digging with their bare hands until some had no skin left on their fingers uh, and fingernails were torn off and... People were smashing windows, trying to both get air in and try to see uh, if there were anyone down there. The um, uh, this this boy Jeff was rescued because he had very blonde hair, and they could see it. Mm-hmm. So they they were able to get uh, they were able to smash his desk away from him with an axe and clear the debris around him. He was the tenth child uh, brought out of the school he was the last child to be brought out alive <sighs> okay what had happened what had happened was basically piling up this uh spoil on top of you know sandstone and underground waterworks inevitably led to that water blending with the stuff and collapsing the pile that pile then slid down the mountain at an estimated 30 kilometers an hour. Wow. Yeah. There was no time for people to really react Mm -hmm. in the moment. This was one of those things where it's the little moments of heroism that count. There was a lunch lady who Mm -hmm. shielded children with her body. All five of the children she shielded survived. And her body was removed with a one-pound note still in her hand from when she'd been collecting the lunch money. Um, One of the teachers saw the wave coming and attempted to barricade the window using the chalkboard. Mm -hmm. Um, No children or the teacher in that classroom survived. 
it's unthinkable of just how quickly this all happened Mm -hmm. and how desperately people just tried to get anyone out of there alive. And there, there, there just was no saving people. It was as if, you know, the school had been struck by a wave of liquid concrete and then everyone in it either drowned, were killed by impacts or suffocated because Mm -hmm. there was no way to get to them. Of course, the irony was, was that the official inspections of tip number seven had said, hey, you know what? We should probably stop dumping on it. Not because we think it's dangerous or anything, because it's completely safe, according to the consultant engineers, Mm -hmm. Uh, but just it's getting a little full. So we should start dumping another one. We should form a a tip number eight. So what I want to quote here is GMJ Williams, the uh, one of the engineers who gave evidence at the tribunal. Uh, he said this is and this is the scientific explanation of what happened. Okay. Quote, Liquefaction occurred. This initially liquefied material began to move rapidly, releasing energy which liquefied the rest of the saturated portion of the tip and almost instantaneously the saturated lower part of tip number seven was changed from a solid to that of a heavy liquid with a density approximately twice that of water. This was the dark glistening wave, which several witnesses saw burst from the bottom of the tip, end quote. And this is just one tip that's collapsing, correct? Yes. This is just tip seven that collapsed. So tip seven comes down the hill. Tips one through six are still there. Is that right? Yes. They're in different locations. Uh-huh. So it, it, thank goodness, because yeah. it wasn't, though, like tip seven collapses, collapsing tip six, collapsing tip five, all that sort of domino effect stuff. That didn't happen. This amount of damage from one of these piles is shocking. Yeah. If the whole, if, if all, if any of them came down, this is what you were going to get. If all of them came down, the whole town would have been buried. Mm-hmm. The response by the people on the ground was to get there and dig with whatever they had to try to get kids out. The response by the NCB was uh, in the most charitable way I can put it, lacking. Mm. The head of the NCB at this time was Alfred Robins, Baron Robins of Waldingham, Lord Robins, the... uh, Chairman of the NCB board. Oh, is he local? He's not local. Mm-hmm. He was born in Manchester. Mm-hmm. His job is to oversee all mining operations in the United Kingdom. Okay. His reaction to this, I, I read uh, the chapters of his uh, autobiography having to do with this, and I found them to be very self-serving mm-hmm. uh, and very revisionist. So I'm not, I'm, I'm, going to inform people of his side of the story, but it, it is it, it does not line up with the facts. Okay. Okay. That morning, the morning of the collapse, mm-hmm. the board convened to discuss what they should do. You know, because that's what you should do. Robins dispatched the director general of production and the chief safety engineer to inspect the situation because he had he had other things to do that day. On his schedule that day was to be installed as the first chancellor of the new University of Surrey. Wow. He had a ceremony to go to. He had to to put on his fancy clothes and get some robes and a cap. That is... 
that is certainly a choice to make. Certainly a choice, okay? He states that the decision for him not to go was because he didn't want to uh, distract the senior officials from the tasks that they should be handling. In other words, I didn't want my people trying to impress me while they had this disaster to tend to. Hmm. In reality, he should have been there because the other problem was, was that the uh, officers, other, other officers of the NCB, that when they were contacted by the Secretary of State for Wales, claimed that he was personally di- directing the relief work. Okay. Now, in fairness, he did visit the scene on Saturday evening the 22nd of October. So the, a day, a, a day, almost two full days afterwards, mm. basically. And this is his responsibility. This is his responsibility. This is his yes. failing as a safety or as an overseer. As the, as the chairman of the, of the NCB, the blame really can be placed at his feet mm-hmm. for not caring at all about the, uh, the previous complaints made about the tips. Right. And in fact, going as so far as to basically threaten people's livelihood. Okay. Police, firefighters, civil defense forces, rescue workers, they all came to help. Things were so bad Mm -hmm. that they had to set up a mortuary in one of the nearby churches. Yeah. The senior identification officer of the regional crime squad Mm -hmm. was a man named Charles Nunn. And he was tasked with setting up a team to both get a mortuary and get people identified. Okay. By 10.30 in the morning, Abavan had been declared a disaster zone. So we're thinking an hour and 15 minutes after it hit. Yeah. It's already had that happen. Thousands of volunteers had descended on the town to try to help get people out. Mm -hmm. And really, a lot of the logistical work was basically directing traffic. Mm -hmm. What Charles Nunn's job was, was basically the chief constable of the city had said this chapel, the Bethania Chapel, was where you wanted to, was where we needed to stage the bodies. Mm -hmm. It was just down the road from the school. Mm -hmm. And... They had the task of going down the rows of all of the people. Nurses and uh, some volunteers were washing away the stuff that was stuck to the skin mm-hmm. of the dead people. And uh, his job and his team's job was to write down a description of each person, mm-hmm. a child or an adult, and detail the possessions of their pockets to help with identification. There's something so horrible about a temporary morgue and about those kind of identification measures. Yeah. It's so human and so sad. Yeah, absolutely. He was also in charge of which bodies should be marked as, quote, not to be viewed. Yeah. Because the standard process of identification was to have the parents come in and lift up a cloth one at a time and see if they found their child. Um. Parents were waiting for hours and hours and hours outside the church because the church was so small Mm -hmm. that only a few people could be let in at a time. Mm -hmm. And once a child had been found by their parents and identified, then they had their identification. Some children and some adults were in a condition that, again, was called not to be viewed. Mm -hmm. So he would make uh, identifications through dental records, fingerprints, or... uh, 
what was found in their pockets. Mm-hmm. For example, apparently one child had a very distinctive toy that they refused to be parted from, and that was what allowed uh, their family to identify them. And were they able to identify everyone? They had registered the deaths of 116 children, mm-hmm. ages between generally ages between 7 and 11, five teachers, and 23 residents of the houses that had been smashed on the way of up to the school. Mm-hmm. It took them 15 days, but they identified 144 bodies. Wow. Uh, now, you would think that that's it. Everybody can mourn now. And you would be wrong. Because a second disaster was about to hit Aberfan. Which was one of those things of, you know, uh, the best of intentions. And it would just rip open this open wound in a... Uh, I, I like how um, I like how Sari Jackson described it. Mm-hmm. is, quote, a saga of cruelty and indignity, end quote. And this is after. This is the aftermath. This horrific disaster. So in the okay. aftermath, in the aftermath, it was decided that an emergency fund needed to be set up, and it needed to be set up immediately. Mm-hmm. And this was a worldwide event. Pictures from this were published in Life International. Mm-hmm. Photographs of this were all over all newswires all over the world, and donations poured in. All told, a total of over one million seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds, mm-hmm. which, in modern money, would be twenty million plus. Mm-hmm. Some of them had some some very cool stories on them. There was uh, a, a mother's savings for a new winter coat. She donated that instead. Uh, an Irish widow donated her husband's gold watch. People emerged in a huge spirit of giving. Mm-hmm. And it was a, you know, it's one of those things where I, I always feel like in the aftermath of any massive tragedy, humanity is really good at pulling together. We intrinsically want to help each other. Yeah, I think we see that in... We see it, we see it all over, yeah. Uh, people try to help. And yeah, there'll always be awful people who try to profit off it as well, but people try to help. However, this uh, disaster fund Mm -hmm. was very, very badly worded. It was, quote, to alleviate financial hardship and help rebuild, end quote. And what are we rebuilding? Right. We're we're trying to rebuild the damage done. (laughs) Right. But the other problem was, as you pointed out, those tips are still there. Hmm. Not only that, but the management of this disaster fund were basically immediately in a massive legal fight with the people of the town of Abavan because they wanted money to, for example, pay for the children's gravestones. Mm -hmm. And they said no. Seems like a good use. Yeah, but no. Okay. Medical care? Rebuilding. Hold on. We'll get there. Because there are some really gross things here. The people of Abavan started begging the NCB to remove the spoil tips. Mm-hmm. And they said, no, listen, they're safe. We won't remove them. We'll landscape them instead. They'll be fine. I'm sorry, landscape? Yeah. 
you know, like plant grass plant on Plant grass? Okay. Sure. Why not? Oh, God. A group of, <laughs> a group of people from Abavan mm-hmm. uh, took sacks of this coal slurry into the reception area of the Welsh office of the NCB and dumped them all over the floor in protest. Mm-hmm. And the Secretary of State for Wales was a man named George Thomas. He had just basically met with the miners to tell them that the tips would not be removed. And then he reversed and said, no, all right, this is, this is extremely upsetting. We should definitely remove the tips. However, was that after, after the the coal dumping? Yes. Okay. However, the NCB said, you know, we're not going to take any financial responsibility for removing the tips. Because it seems like that would be expensive to safely. It seems like it would be also their six job. Massive mountains down. Yeah, I mean, yeah. whose job is it if it's not their job? It's right. their exactly. stuff. It's their spoil, right? So they do agree to do it, okay. but but only if paid. So the payment for it comes out of the Abavan Disaster Fund. Oh no! To a tune of a hundred and fifty thousand pounds. And then that's not gross. That that is is not the grossest. Gross. Okay. That is gross. Yes. But we are about to hit the absolute low. Okay. So all donation based funds are, are come under what's called the charity commission in the UK. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they were trying to figure out how to properly compensate the parents who lost their children. See, we talk about this a lot. Yeah. Especially with, you know, as you say, parents who have lost children. And there's just yeah. that kind of thinking is just really, really difficult for me. There, and there's no what amount compensation of money. Is there? Yeah, exactly. No. There, you know, you what could, can you do that will make a meaningful difference to someone in that stage of grief? Well, interestingly enough, I did run across a, a, uh, <laughs> a similar situation in another country where basically mm-hmm. what they did was they said, listen... We cannot, we cannot ever replace your child. What we can do is give 100% guaranteed tuition to any university in the country that, your, uh, that any other children you may have wish to go to, paid for by the government, and any outstanding loans on your home will be taken in as liens against governmental property. Therefore, you will own your houses outright and your government basically will pay your mortgage for you. It won't make up for the loss of your children, but you won't be further financially burdened, which I thought like there isn't a way to make up for it. But that's not the worst proposal. The worst proposal comes from the Charity Commission. Okay. Their proposal was to issue a questionnaire. Now, I want to I want to preface this by saying they did not go through with this. This was what they were going to do until somebody slapped them upside the head and said, don't do this, you idiots. Okay. Their proposal was to submit a questionnaire to the parents. Okay. With the question of exactly how close were you to your child? Okay. And those found not to have been terribly close to their children would receive lesser compensation. I just... If How that is not the most like infuriating make thing, it right? <laughs> to a piece of paper, like you have to write yeah. that down, and you have and to write that down at some point to yourself, right? Yes, yes. Hopefully, hopefully this wasn't some intern being like, "What's the worst thing I could possibly think of in this situation?" 
That is God, really it's, disgusting. It's okay. cruel. It's nothing but cruel. Fortunately, they never acted on that proposal. Instead, what they did was they made a blanket offer. Yeah. Of 50 pounds. Okay. I just... Now, when that was met with widespread outrage, they increased it to the quote-unquote generous offer of 500 pounds. And here was their reasoning, and this is the low. They advised that a more substantial sum would have been a burden on the working class recipients not used to large amounts of money. Okay. And that's the point where I nearly threw something heavy across the room. That is... That is maybe the so worst disgusting. thing we have ever talked it about. It might be. I think I'm that's... sorry your kids died, but we're not going to give you more than 500 pounds because you might not act responsibly with it. I hate that so much. I'm, I'm infuriated. Okay. Like, I can't... This is this is one of the reasons why this thing hits me so hard is this level of bureaucratic cruelty. It is unnecessary, it is unwarranted, and it is nothing but cruel. And I hate it, all of it. Also, because the Bethania Chapel had been used as, you know, a mortuary, mm-hmm. Understandably, the congregation that used to worship there did not want to use it anymore. Yeah. And they submitted a proposal to raise and rebuild the chapel. Okay, so raise it to the ground and then rebuild it so that it, it would be a, a place of peace and worship again. Right. That proposal was also rejected. Okay. So there was a tribunal because, of course, there freaking was. I'm not going to be satisfied at the end of this, am I? Oh. Of course not. Okay. Um, now, this tribunal did, I, I will say this, this convened very swiftly. This was not a matter of like a couple months or years down the road, they finally convened this thing. Mm-hmm. October 26th, five days later. Wow. Okay. Resolutions passed the House of Parliament and the Secretary of State for Wales appointed a tribunal to inquire into the quote unquote causes and circumstances. Now, he appointed a man named Edmund Davies, who was a Lord Judge, mm-hmm. a Lord Justice, excuse me, who was from the Abavan area, okay? He did not come in there with, like, you know, any particular axe to grind or thing to prove, but he also didn't come in there completely in the pocket of the NCB. Okay. This tribunal sat for 76 days. That is the longest inquiry in British history up until that time. It took evidence from 136 witnesses. It examined 300 exhibits. It looked at the history of the mining in the area together with the region's geological conditions. And the report stated, the National Coal Board is completely at fault. The actual quote is wonderful, and I love it, quote, Much of the time of this tribunal could have been saved if the National Coal Board had not stubbornly resisted every attempt to lay the blame where it must so clearly rest at their door, end quote. I like that. Okay. Yeah. Now, the reason that they were a little ticked off about this was because, remember, this was a 76-day tribunal. Mm -hmm. Not until day 65. 
five, did anyone within the NCB admit that they knew that this land was not was not stable, mm-hmm. that the instability of the tip could have been foreseen, should have been foreseen, and by everybody would have been foreseen. And then somebody finally got Lord Robins himself to sit down. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is, is that Lord Robins had been directly asserting the opposite. This is a horrible tragedy. There was no way anyone could have foreseen this. You know, we feel for the victims, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, his own engineers are like, right here on the map, it says there's an underground, there's underground water. Robins's answers at the, when he testified were so inconsistent Mm -hmm. and so just self-contradictory that his own counsel asked the tribunal to disregard the evidence he had given. Wow. So his own lawyers yeah. were like, this guy. <laughs> They're like, I'm sorry, we can't. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. That's terrible. Okay. The report that the tribunal issued stated that, quote, our strong and unanimous view is that the Abavan disaster could have and should have been prevented. Mm-hmm. The report which follows tells not of wickedness, but of ignorance, ineptitude, failure in communication, Ignorance on the part of all those charged at all levels with the sighting, control, and daily management, bungling ineptitude on the parts of those who had the duty of supervising, and failure on the parts of those having knowledge of these factors to communicate that knowledge and see that it was applied. End quote. Okay. Now, what they suggested was that the entire blame rests with the National Coal Board. Mm -hmm. In varying degrees, it rests with certain individuals, but... It is the National Coal Board's fault. Right. Item number two. There's no policy to govern these spoil tips. So because there's no policy by the NCB and there's no policy from Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Mines and Quarries Mm -hmm. and there's no legislation dealing with it, we can't charge them with violating a law because there literally isn't a law about it. However... This is the important one. Quote, the legal liability of the National Coal Board to pay compensation for the personal injuries, fatal or otherwise, and damage to property is incontestable and uncontested. End quote. Okay. Yeah. So the end result of this is that no coal board executive lost their job. Lord Robins offered his resignation in a public show where apparently, and I don't have verification for this, but I do have two sources who claim it, apparently he had been assured beforehand that they would not accept his resignation. Because, you see, he led them through the strike Mm. era, and and his minds were running strike-free. And so, his resignation was not accepted. The NCB was not fined. Were they... They were not censured. They were not yelled at. They Nothing happened to them. Nobody stood up and said, these people have done a horrible thing. Except, except for the people of Abavan themselves. At the public inquiry, there was a motion to enter the names of the children mm-hmm. so that they would be read into the record. As they were read into the record you could hear shouts of murderers being screamed over their names by the people in attendance. And one father 
issued a uh, a legal document to bar the official cause of his child's death uh, to have it changed from, quote, asphyxia and multiple injuries, end quote. He insisted instead that the cause of death on the death certificate should read, quote, buried alive by the National Coal Board, unquote. Wow. And he's not wrong. Mm. So one point of controversy for this, which it seems has really been, I, I, I don't know, I wasn't there, but it seems like this has been blown out of, pers- of perspective, I guess, mm-hmm. would be the reaction of the crown at the time. Uh, this was Queen Elizabeth II. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth II did not visit Abavan until eight or nine days later. And she was called to task for it. And her answer actually does hold water with me, unlike Lord Robins's answer. Mm-hmm. Her answer was, look, basically, and I'm paraphrasing here because the queen did not speak like this, but if I had showed up, everyone's attention would have been on me and there would have been a protection details for me and there would have been all this stuff. And that was energy much better spent trying to save even one child. And I'm okay with that because she's the queen. She's not in charge of this, unlike the guy who was in charge of it, who tried to basically use a similar excuse. When she did finally come there, though, Mm -hmm. she was actually the one who laid the wreath on the children's cemetery Mm -hmm. when it was opened. So she was there not just in, you know, a ceremonial role, Mm -hmm. but as a genuine, like she sat down with people in their homes and talked with them. The little boy that was rescued he viewed the queen as a friend for the rest of her life. Uh, he's still around. Mm-hmm. And she exchanged correspondence with them. She revisited Abavan at least three or four more times during her reign. And it was not, it wasn't a photo op for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there was an occasion where apparently she lost her temper overhearing a, a photographer asking a child at the funeral to cry more so that he could get a better photo. Yeah, that would... That would piss me off. That would... I think most human beings would be a little... Meh. Little ticked. Okay. Yeah. Since then, Abavan has lived with this wound. The Children's Cemetery is... It's, I think it's as beautiful as cemeteries can get, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are these little white sort of marbly arches over each of the graves of the children. Uh, There's lovely inscriptions, but it's still a constant reminder of when literally half of their children were wiped away in a moment. And the town doesn't recover from that. Mm -hmm. It has uh, a much higher instance than the national normal of pretty much every single, uh, you know, depression, anxiety, paranoia, insomnia, early death, suicide... The children that survived um, were described as growing up without play Mm. because play would have been cruel to the parents whose children did not. Mm -hmm. That was a quote that really hit me hard. Uh, Everybody had survivor's guilt. All the children that survived lived with this massive guilt for the rest of their lives because why were they special? Why did they live when their entire classes were wiped away? Mm Mm-hmm. And to have to deal with losing, you know, your best school friends at that age is you, you don't recover from that. Pretty awful. Yeah. So I want to close this by quoting, quoting from Sari Jackson's piece, um, because I couldn't think of a better ending than how she put it. 
Okay. Quote, if you take the old single-track parish road, which winds its way to the top of the Taff Valley and look down on the village of Abavan, at first glance, there's little to set it apart from any of the surrounding former mining communities. The rows of terraces so typical of the South Wales coal field nestle virtually unchanged in five decades at the bottom of the steep valley. The river Taff, which skirts the village, once clogged and black with colliery filth, is clear once again, and salmon, otters, and kingfishers have returned. The sight of the once mighty colliery has all but vanished, landscaped and covered with trees. Its only relic, the mine sheave wheel on which the village turned for so long, is concreted into the roundabout of a newly built road around the village. The bustling high street of family-run shops is also gone. Abavan, along with the rest of the disinherited industrialized South Wales valleys, has struggled with high unemployment and its incumbent social problems. In the cemetery on the hillside above the village, the two rows of children's graves are prominent. The pearl-white granite arches have offered a long-awaited redemption from pain for so many parents whose inscriptions have been added over the years as they were reunited with the children that they waved goodbye to on that cold, foggy October morning. The cemetery, maintained by the disaster fund which continues to offer educational grants, is immaculate as is the memorial garden where the school once stood. The garden's tranquility is not disturbed by the rhythmic whisk of traffic directly above it on the A470. There is not a petal out of place in the border of flowers which mirror the classroom configuration. A section for Standard 1, Standard 2, Standard 3, and Standard 4. As a result of Abavan, legislation passed in 1969 put into place a strict policy on the practice of tipping. This led to legislation being amended and reviewed across the world. The majority of tips in South Wales have been removed, and the valleys, like Abavans, are green again. But look long enough, and the outline of where they once stood above the village can be clearly seen. Despite efforts to cultivate it, the grass which grows over the site of the tips is a different color, a coarse, sickly yellow, as if nature itself refuses to give up the ghost and forgive the appalling calamity of the past. It is consoling to think that the pain which consumed this village, that shattered lives and the unjust treatments of its working men and women has made a significant difference in forming and influencing countless changes over the last 50 years. The majority of those men and women are not around today, but the white arch graves and the tainted grass above them serves as an indelible reminder for who knows how many generations to come of their part in a defining moment in history." End quote. So, that's it. That's the story of the Abavan disaster, a completely avoidable disaster brought on by coal mining, and then a completely unnecessary and cruel treatment of those who survived it immediately afterwards. That is pretty awful. Yeah. I have a question for you. Of course. You can stand to talk about this a little bit longer. Go ahead. When they were in the tribunal, they were talking a lot about ignorance. Yeah. Do you think that is a true ignorance, as in they really didn't know that the conditions were dangerous? Or is that just kind of a little weaseling out of responsibility? I think it's willful ignorance. I think it's, it's one of those things where the information is there. They chose to not know it. The town had been sending them letters and Mm -hmm. statements and legal documents for a while stating, listen, these things don't seem safe. Mm -hmm. And every time the response was, well, what do you want us to do? Close down the mine? 
And was there any kind of whistleblowing within the company? Was any, no, were any employees speaking out about the same practice? Some did at the inquiry because they were under oath and they were, and they were directed to speak. Sure. But that's pretty late in the game, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's way too late. It doesn't save anybody's life. No, there were no, there was no whistleblowing because whistleblowing at the time simply meant that you'd be fired and nothing would happen. And uh, it's hard to overstate how powerful the National Coal Board was at this time. Mm -hmm. Like they might as well have been their own branch of government because the, there were several instances of them, you know, violating, let's just say the law Sure. And people being absolutely powerless to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. I do want to. I do want to say one thing though. The um, that hundred and fifty thousand pounds that they that they uh, took out of the Abavan disaster fund so to clean up the tips, mm-hmm. that eventually was repaid to the fund with full apologies in the nineteen nineties. Just so better late than never. But is it though? Is it? No. I just I can't get my head around this. This is really, really horrible. Yeah. We chose not to give you slightly exaggerated credentials tonight, but we did fact check our story in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our story today, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to share some insights that we missed or just share your thoughts on this subject. And we know you do. Why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters? Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope that uh, you've heard the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My sister has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Ella? We are headed to Lake Superior next week, and we're going to talk Ooh. about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Maybe you've oh, heard cool. the song. We're going to yes. talk about the actual event that inspired the beautiful folk song. Excellent. Well, that sounds amazing, and I can't wait to talk about it with you.